Well, let's turn to the Word of God once again in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9, and we'll be looking at verse 46 through 50 this morning. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 46. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for the one who is least among all of you This is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Many of you, if you have been alive long enough, or if you are history buffs, will remember the late Chuck Colson, who was known as Richard Nixon's hatchet man due to his willingness to do anything necessary to destroy his political opponents. In describing one particular conversation that he had with Richard Nixon, Colson writes this, I vividly recall a glimpse from my White House days. One brisk December night as I accompanied the president from the Oval Office in the West Wing of the White House to the residence, Mr. Nixon was musing about what people wanted in their leaders. He slowed a moment, looking into the distance across the South Lawn and said, The people really want a leader a little bigger than themselves, don't they, Chuck? I agreed. I mean, someone like de Gaulle, he continued. There's a certain aloofness, a power that's exuded by great men that people feel and want to follow. Now, that conversation, of course, took place before Watergate. It also took place before Colson's saving encounter with Jesus Christ. That encounter changed everything. As Colson went on to write, Jesus Christ exhibited none of this self-conscious aloofness. He served others first. He spoke to those to whom no one spoke. He dined with the lowest members of society. He touched the untouchables. He had no throne, no crown, no bevy of servants or armored guards, a borrowed manger, and a borrowed tomb framed his earthly life. Kings and presidents and prime ministers surround themselves with minions who rush ahead, swing the doors wide, and stand at attention as they wait for the great to pass. 
Jesus said that he himself stands at the door and knocks. Colson, of course, is absolutely right. True greatness is the antithesis of pride and exclusivity. Yet many who sit in church pews every Sunday don't seem to understand this. You see this in the kinds of men that they follow after. Strutting leaders characterized by pride, a desire to be known. There's a narrowness that characterizes the lives of many. Today, in some parts of the church, it seems that the church no longer actually believes the words of Jesus. We want to make much of ourselves, and we want the world to think much of us. This is certainly an issue for us today, isn't it? Where is our concern in regard to the world? Is our concern that the world hear the truth, no matter what they think of us? Or are we more concerned with what the world thinks of us? For decades, the church has, in various ways, been very much concerned to understand what the world would like the church to be. I think back now many decades to my days in college and in seminary and what we were told about how to grow a church. And so often part of that whole church growth scheme was developing surveys and going out into the community around the church to find out what the unbeliever wants the church to be and then giving them what they want. That's upside down. The world doesn't know what it wants. Well, it knows what it wants. It doesn't know what it needs. And when you tell the world what it needs, it doesn't want to hear it. So our task, the task of the church is to proclaim that which the world does not want to hear with the understanding and conviction that the Holy Spirit changes the heart so that the one who did not want to hear the truth when renewed by the Holy Spirit comes to understand and accept and love the truth. But that's a spiritual transaction. I 
Perhaps you've heard someone describe the difference between dogs and cats. You pet a dog and the dog wags its tail and thinks he must be God. You pet a cat and the cat purrs and shuts its eyes and thinks to itself, I must be God. When God graciously reaches down to us, there is a perverse tendency in the human heart to think like the cat. As Christians, we began well. We realized that we were needy sinners, and that realization humbled us so that we might receive the free grace and mercy of God. We were like the dog. God was everything to us, and we gladly worshipped him. But as time went on, the feline part of us began to come out, and we began to think differently. Perhaps we began to listen to false teachers who wanted to tickle our ears and tell us how wonderful we are. We believed that poster that says God thinks we're big stuff, And that realization of our need for grace began to get lost. That's what happened to the Galatians, isn't it? That's why Paul had to ask them, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun by the Spirit, having understood your inability, having understood your need for grace, do you now think you're capable of keeping yourself and growing into Christ-likeness by your own efforts, according to the ability of the flesh, it's a strange thing, isn't it? We begin the Christian life in utter dependence. We come to the spirit-wrought realization that we have nothing to offer. We are sinners by nature and by deed. We cannot please God with our works, or our righteousness, because what we believe to, the, uh, to be the best of our works are filthy rags before God, and we possess absolutely no righteousness of our own. None. So we come to God through Jesus Christ entirely dependent upon his work, not ours. We come to stand before the Father on the basis of Christ's righteousness, acknowledging that we have no righteousness of our own. And then what happens? The Spirit of God comes to dwell within us. And now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we begin to live the Christian life. And because the Spirit is at work within us, things begin to change. The fruit of the Spirit begins to develop within us. Things don't change as fast as we would like, but changes do happen. Perhaps our language changes. Destructive habits are dropped off. We begin to see and to think about the world in different ways than we used to. But here's the danger. When those changes begin to take place, we can forget that those changes find their source 
in the work of God's indwelling spirit. Those spirit-wrought changes, then, can actually become a source of pride. We may not go so far as the cat. We won't consciously think, I must be God. But we may begin to silently imagine, I must be pretty good. We who begin in humility can become proud of our apparent sanctification and our knowledge of the scripture and our sacrificial ministry. This cognitive dissonance is even more pronounced when it comes to those of us who love and cherish the sovereignty of God and the doctrines of grace. We affirm with boldness and great joy the glory of grace, the doctrine of election. We proclaim without hesitation the total depravity of all mankind. We believe that Paul was telling the truth when he wrote that man is dead in sin and that no one does good and that there is none who are righteous. We don't shy away from the truth that salvation is a gift from God as is repentance. And then while affirming all of that, we wonder why the unregenerate around us can't see things as clearly as we do. And our hearts become proud of those things which our mind understands are all the result of grace. That doesn't fit. We recognize that we are the recipients of grace, but we expect others who are still dead, who still have hearts of stone, who still in their deadness cannot understand spiritual things, we still ask, so what's wrong with them? Why haven't they figured this out? Of course, this pride doesn't typically manifest itself in such an overt fashion. We tend to get pretty good at keeping that pride just under the surface. But it can't be hidden completely. As one has put it, there is a telltale aroma to our pride. Perhaps it's the odor of subtle condescension, of the aloofness that Nixon spoke about, or a, a click, clickish exclusivity. That kind of pride, whether acknowledged or not, cannot help but have an effect upon the church and the world around us. How can we proclaim a gospel of grace when we're giving off the impression, even if we don't say it in so many words, that before one can come to Christ, they must first become worthy. They must first figure it all out. What we find in the passage before us this morning is that this kind of wrong thinking even caused issues 
in the ministry of Jesus. We read in verse 46 that an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Now, of course, we're talking about the disciples here. Let's remember who the disciples are. Some of these guys were fishermen. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a fisherman. But it's not typically on the list of ten most prestigious jobs. One of them was far lower on the scale of respectability than even fishermen. He was a tax collector. He was viewed by everyone as corrupt. Not only corrupt, but also a traitor to his people. He was a quisling in the service of the Roman Empire. In fact, none of the disciples, as far as we know, would have been held in great regard by society in general. And yet, God's gracious hand had reached down to them. It was not kings or generals or religious leaders whom God called, but men of humble circumstances. And it is these men who were nothing before Jesus called them, who are now arguing about who the greatest is. They had been called, they had been taught, they had been gifted for ministry, they had been used to preach and to heal and to cast out demons, and now these men who had been nothing before Christ called them began to think, I must be something special. They began to think the way we do. I know what the scripture says about my depravity. And I know what the scripture says about God's electing grace. Entirely undeserved. But really. There's got to be some reason. There's got to be something he saw in me. Got to be some reason he chose me and not him. I must be big stuff. Somehow. God just didn't include it in the Bible. We think the same way the disciples did. There's got to be something good about me. When everything in the revealed word of God says just the opposite. But that's what they were thinking. I must be something special. In fact, not only am I more special than all those people that Jesus has not called... I think I'm more special than these 11 clowns. Now, of course, what I want to know when I read this is who started it. How does a conversation like this even begin? Because I can't imagine it. I can't imagine, you know, a bunch of us guys getting together for a men's breakfast. And when we have consumed all the bacon, getting into an argument 
about which one of us is better than all the rest. I, I cannot imagine it. Because really, what's there to argue about? Right? Uh, We might, however, find an answer in regard to the disciples by going back and following the flow of Luke's story. You go back to chapter 6, and in verses 12 through 16, we saw that it was only after an entire night of prayer that Jesus named the twelve. So as far as that goes... They were a special group in the sense that Jesus chose them and he didn't choose others. Of course, if we see this choice in the light of what we find elsewhere in Scripture, then we see that this may not have anything to do with these 12 being better than anybody else. When you hear what Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, then we understand that being chosen does not necessarily mean that one is in any sense better than anyone else. Paul told the Corinthians, in fact, that they had been chosen precisely because they were less than others. They were the weak ones. They were the insignificant ones. There was nothing great about them, and yet they were chosen, which by definition sets them apart. Chapter 6 through 8, Luke shows the twelve being witnesses of the most intimate teaching and, and displays of Jesus' miraculous power. At the beginning of chapter 9, then, we read of their being commissioned and then going out on their own to minister themselves. And they are given tremendous power. They enjoy, in that sense, elite status thanks to the grace of God. And then for three of the twelve, it goes even further when Peter and James and John are taken up with Jesus to the mountain where they see the transfiguration taking place. They see the glory of Christ revealed before them what Peter called the majestic glory. But when the three came down from the mountain, having seen such an amazing sight, what happens? Peter and James and John discovered that the other nine had been unable to heal a demonically afflicted boy. They had failed. And in that, I think you can see the genesis of this conversation. There were three out of the twelve who had a great privilege. They were up on the mountain to see the glory of Christ. The nine left down below failed. 
And so now you've got the 12 divided up into two distinct groups. The spiritually privileged ones and the failures. So Jesus, of course, not only healed the boy, he also rebuked those disciples who had failed. We saw this last week when we looked back at Luke chapter 9 and verse 1. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. All the demons. Not all except this one. And yet, through the, though, though the authority had been given to them, they had failed to cast out this demon. And then following this rebuke, Jesus goes on to issue a rather ominous warning about his own personal end. Verse 44, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So, this is what we're seeing. Jesus tells them he's going to be delivered over into the hands of men. And the response of the disciples to this terrible news is to argue about which of them is greater. And we don't know exactly how the argument went. No doubt some were more aggressive than others, but pride is always ugly. And here it is on full display. Can you imagine Jesus telling those who are closest to him again, right? Because he's mentioned this before. So there is a little background to this. And he's reminding them, listen guys, my death is coming. I'm going to be handed over to men. They knew what that meant. He wasn't being handed over for a party in his honor. He was being handed over to death. He had already made that clear. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. An argument started. <laughs> Once again, please remember, there are no gaps in the text. In my Bible, there's a little space between verse 45 and 26 and 46. Okay. Little heading. The test of greatness. But if you're reading this as Luke wrote it, verse 45 to verse 46. Jesus did not directly hear this argument going on, but he knew that it was taking place. He knew what they were thinking, verse 47 says, in their heart. Jesus does this all the time, right? I don't, I, I'd be very uncomfortable being around Jesus 
once I saw him do this once or twice, right? He knew what they were thinking in their heart. (laughs) And he doesn't have to ask them what they're arguing about. He just answers. And he does so by using an object lesson to help them see their erroneous thinking. And so he takes a child and stood the child by his side and said to them, to the disciples, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you This is the one who is great. Now, why a child? A child because a child was the smallest, most powerless individual in Hebrew culture. The Talmud regarded spending time with children to be a waste of time. One rabbi wrote this, morning sleep, Midday wine, chattering with children, and tarrying in places where men of the common people assemble destroy a man. Keeping company with children, it was thought, added nothing to a man. Later in Luke chapter 18, we see that the disciples considered Jesus to be too important to waste time with children. And so when children are brought to him, the disciples try to keep them away. The disciples undoubtedly thought, as everyone in their culture apparently besides Jesus did, that greatness is determined by the company one keeps. Nothing much has changed. The great associate with the great and deal with matters of great significance. Children are not great. Children are not significant. Children don't matter. So Peter and James and John probably argued for their greatness based on their meeting with Moses and Elijah. But children... Children can do nothing for you. This is is how the world thinks, isn't it? I want to make connections. We we, we call it networking. I want to make connections because this person that I meet today may be able to do something for me down the line. And so someone who is greater than I am, someone who may be able to be to my advantage at some point, I'm going to be really nice to them. Someone who is below me socially, someone who really can't do anything for me, I don't need to worry about them. I can treat them however I want. Nothing really changes Solomon was right. Nothing is new under the sun. It's always been that way. So seeking to break through the disciples' 
selfish ambitions, Jesus presents them with two opposite figures. Himself, who personified everything for the disciples, and then a child who was nothing to them. And then Jesus issues the challenge. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Jesus is not saying that his disciples or anyone else would find him through being nice to children. (laughs) This is not a gospel presentation. This is not salvation through being nice to kids. That's not what he's saying. He was saying that how they related to those who are perceived as insignificant would reveal who they are. It says something about their hearts. And what it it says about them is whether or not they are in relationship to Jesus and to the Father. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. And if you are a disciple, you are dumbstruck. Because what were they arguing about? An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. And Jesus, they knew, was not close enough to actually hear their argument. But he just walks up and he addresses exactly what they were arguing about because we know that he knew what they were thinking in their heart. And no matter how many times this happened, no matter how many times the disciples witnessed this, you've got to think every time it's another shock. How can you get used to that kind of thing? Greatness is not merely the possession of those who associate with the great. Rather, it is a gift of God to those who receive and serve the lowly. That's the point. Jesus caps his argument with a very concisely stated principle at the end of verse 48. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is Great. Now, it's going to take these guys a long time to figure this out, to understand what Jesus is saying here. Luke doesn't record this, but when you come to the Gospel of John, and Jesus is coming to the end of his earthly ministry, and he and his disciples are gathered there together in the upper room, You remember what happens. They come together into the upper room and somebody was supposed to be responsible for washing everybody's feet. Now, what's going on there is a cultural thing. We don't typically do this anymore. I've never had any of you offer to wash my feet when I've come to your home. 
I haven't offered to wash yours either, so we're even. But in first century Palestine, as you're walking around all day in the heat and your feet are getting sweaty and disgusting and there are no paved roads, the dust is clean, clinging to you, it's really a pretty gross situation. And you come together into someone's home or into the upper room as this case was, it was the responsibility of the person who was considered lowest on the ladder to wash everyone's feet. So in some places that would have been a slave. Or if there were no slaves, the youngest child. If there were no children, then the youngest adult and so on. So they all come into the upper room and no one makes a move to pick up the basin and the towel. Why? Because no one wants to admit that they're the lowest. They're still non-verbally having this argument. The night before Jesus is crucified. And so Jesus picks up the basin and the towel. And he washes everybody's feet. The one who is greatest among Jesus' disciples is not the one who can boast of the greatest or most prominent relationships, but the disciple who is prepared to identify with the lowly, to put himself and his own image and his own honor aside. The one who doesn't care what people think about him as long as they think about Jesus. That's the mark of a disciple, brothers and sisters. Not that we make much of ourselves, but that we make much of Jesus. Jesus' words to the disciples are piercing and deflating, and John, who seemed to have something of a tender soul, is convicted regarding something that had been bothering him, it seems. And he voices it. Verse 49, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. During their Galilean ministry, John and company had encountered a successful freelance exorcist. Apparently, that man had not been called in the same way that Jesus called them. He had not been commissioned in the same way that they had. He had not been privileged to receive the instruction and have the experiences of the twelve. We don't know anything else about him except what John says here. So because he wasn't one of them, he hadn't been called like they had. They ha he, they, he hadn't witnessed Jesus' ministry and been with Jesus the way they had. They tried to stop him. The only explanation John gives is because he does not follow along with us. So significantly, their sin here had the same root 
as the sin we saw in the previous verses. Namely, their sinful pride about being privileged disciples. He's not one of us, so he shouldn't be doing this unless we give him leave. And we have not done so. They considered exorcism to be their exclusive ministry. This is is a sin that tarnishes so much ministry. John Claypool recalled in his Yale lectures on preaching, 1979, he says, I can still recall going to state and national conventions in our denomination and coming home feeling drained and unclean. Because most of the conversation in the hotel rooms and the halls was characterized either by envy of those who were doing well or scarcely concealed delight for those who were doing poorly. Pastors. (laughs) For did that not mean that someone was about to fall and thus create an opening higher up the ladder? (laughs) Amazing. That problem is not only ministerial. That problem is congregational. How do we feel when others ascend to positions of responsibility and we don't? Or when someone surpasses us in our ability to lead or to teach? Or if someone is honored where we would like to be honored? Even more telling, how do we feel when we become aware of such a person being humbled? Jesus' answer to John is both a prohibition, do not stop him, do not hinder him, and a principle. For he who is not against you is for you. He desires his followers to have open hearts, not exclusive hearts. Just because someone is not a Reformed Baptist does not mean God isn't using them. When Joshua rushed to Moses to warn him that some elders named Eldad and Medad were preaching and thus stealing some of Moses' prominence, Moses replied this way, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. While in a Roman prison cell, Paul learned that rival preachers were seizing that opportunity for self-promotion. They weren't even preaching out of good motives. And yet, Paul's response is, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. By the way, that should tell you something about the power of the word of God. It's not dependent upon the preacher. The power is in the word itself. Even if the word of God is preached with with impure motives, God can use his word to accomplish his purposes. Consider Jonathan. Next in line to be king. But... 
who made a covenant with David, we're told, because he loved him as his own soul and committed to making David king. Jonathan, son of Saul, says, I'll give it up because David's the guy. And he realized that. And he wasn't jealous for position or for power. Where John the Baptist, who responded to Jesus' ascendance by saying, of course, he must increase and I must decrease. What did you expect? He's the Messiah, I'm not. Put aside all personal hopes for success and to surrender to God's plan is the way of discipleship. That is the way we worship with our very lives and our hearts. It is obedient service and it is utter freedom. When you don't care, you don't care who gets the credit, you don't care about being recognized, you don't care about getting to the next rung up the ladder, you don't care about your position, there is freedom there, brothers and sisters. There is freedom there. You're not constantly striving. As believers, we have all experienced God's reaching down to us in grace. And in that sense, we are all special. Not because there's anything special about us, but God has made us special by calling us his children. Adopting us as his. But we must never move from seeing the riches of his grace to saying, I must be extraordinary. I must really be something. May our sinful hearts not pervert God's grace into a source of pride. Imagined greatness is a dangerous delusion. God will do what he will. And if God gives you a place of prominence, then all glory to him. That is what he has sovereignly decreed for your life. And if you go through your life serving faithfully and no one ever knows your name, praise God. May God be glorified for what he does in his people. The truly great person does not think of himself. The truly great person in the eyes of God cares nothing for what others think about him. The truly great person is one who consorts with the lowly, who desires to be faithful for Christ's sake. The truly great rarely reside in prominent pulpits. The truly great are rarely honored. They are hidden. They are among the anonymous. They stand with the weak. Do you know, have you ever thought about this? If you list the 12 apostles, there are more apostles that we know absolutely nothing about than there are that we know 
something about. You know Peter and John, a little bit of James. Nathaniel, Bartholomew, who are these guys? What did they do? They were right there with Jesus. They spent years with him. They were given the title Apostle. They were there at Pentecost. Beyond that, there's some tradition from the early church, but who knows? And yet, we cannot doubt these men were great. They were faithful. The truly great rejoice in the glory of God, not their own glory. They rejoice in the glory of others' growth and success and honor in the ministry, in the kingdom. But they do not spend their lives saying, look at me. May we be those who understand what it means to be truly great. Father, make it so. Father, take away our pride. Take away our concern with how others view us and think of us and speak of us. May we live our lives only before you. And Father, use us, not for our own glory, but for yours. These things, Father, we ask in the name of Christ our Savior, the one who humbled himself, left his throne in glory, and came and took on the form of a man, and was obedient unto death on the cross. And who was then, Father, having humbled himself, then raised by you to glory. Oh, Father, if there is glory to be had, it is glory that you give. Father, cause us to rejoice in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together.